All right. Well, we return to Exodus chapter 20, and here we are doing now what's a series through the Ten Commandments. We were preaching right through Exodus, but now as we've come to the Ten, we're just taking one at a time, and we're at the Seventh Commandment, this commandment prohibiting adultery. So, of course, in that way, a fitting title to say an adulterous heart. But before we get too far along, I do want to just put that text of study before you. It's so short. But here it is, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, reads like this, you shall not commit adultery. And with that before us, I called to my mind here by way of introduction, just this list that I had read from another pastor. And as we go through the list, I don't blame him. We're just getting started. Well, here's a list of things that I think by the time we get to the end, you'll realize what it's a list about. And it goes like this. He wrote, grieving my Lord, displeasing the one whose opinion matters most, dragging into the mud Christ's sacred reputation, a loss of reward and commendation from God, having to one day look Jesus in the face at the judgment seat and give an account for why I did what I did. Forcing God to discipline me in various ways. Following in the footsteps of men, I know whose ministry, or excuse me, whose immorality forfeited their ministry and in the past had caused me to shudder. And then he encourages the pastor's reading to list the kind of names in their own list. I could add for you Artaxerdia or Professor Stitzinger. Untold hurt to my best friend and loyal wife, loss of my wife's respect and trust. Hurt to and loss of credibility with my beloved children. And then he adds, why listen to a man who betrayed mom and us? Shame to my family. Shame to my church family. Shame and hurt to my fellow pastors and elders. And then he encourages you to list the names of them. And make it very personal. Make it accountable. Shame and hurt to my friends and especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. And again, list out the names. Guilt, awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I ever forgive myself? disqualifying myself after having preached to so many others, bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God, heaping judgment and endless problems on the person who I committed adultery with, possible diseases, pain, constant reminder to me and my wife, possible infection of my wife, or in the case of AIDS, even causing her death as well as mine, possible pregnancy with its personal and financial implications, loss of respect, discrediting my own name, and invoking shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself. These are just some of the things, the consequences, if one commits adultery. This came from the pen and the heart of Randy Alcorn, who was a pastor at the time when he compiled this list. But he was prompted to make the list after having a meeting with a noted pastor who had disqualified himself because of adultery. And as Randy Alcorn met with him and started figuring out, hey, what was going on? How did this happen? Uh, He even asked him the question, what could have been done to prevent this? And here's what the sullied pastor responded. He said, If only I had really known, really thought through and weighed what it would cost me and my family and my Lord, he had said, I honestly believe I would never have done it. Sin, and this sin especially, is never worth it. There's just far too much at stake. And more than this, 
Marriage is a sacred gift from God that must be prized. It must be treasured. You don't just leave a treasure out in the open. You protect it. You guard it. And that's really what this command is all about as He gives it to Israel and now to us once again, is that marriage needs to be protected. It needs to be guarded. You need to do everything you can to guard against infidelity, adultery. So in a word, what is this command about? If you could put it positively, you know, we talk about these Ten Commandments, the don'ts, and so the don't is don't commit adultery. But positively, what is this about? This is about honoring and protecting, guarding marriage and all that it stands for. And not just for yours, though that's of highest priority, but by guarding yours, you're actually too going to be able to guard any others around you. Or maybe you're single and you're not married. You still have the same call to honor and protect marriage, to guard all of those marriages and all of those hearts all around you. This is what's encapsulated by this very brief command, you shall not commit adultery. And we're going to look in the text and go to some other texts in Scripture and consider three fronts of this battle, three ways we need to guard and protect marriage. And the first is this, we need to guard against marital, just blanket infidelity. We need to guard against blanket marital infidelity. And we're going to look at, namely, just the verse in question here, Exodus 20, verse 14. But most fundamentally, when we're talking about marriage, we're talking about this. We're talking about protecting marital faithfulness, following through on those vows and commitments in marriage. That's the positive way to say it, or negatively, don't commit adultery, or in other words, don't commit infidelity. But as we come to the command, again, it reads so simply as follows, again, verse 14 of Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. As we start to dive in and figure out what is marital infidelity and so then fidelity really look like, uh, I think on the face of it, we have a pretty good grip, uh, at least as it, we're talking about adultery. You know, what is this? It's pretty simple, right? Don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. And if you do, you're committing adultery. And that way, it's pretty straightforward. But as we start to dive a little more closely, looking at some other texts, uh, we start to see that's part of the target of what this command's getting at, but there's a bullseye. And if you're familiar with a dartboard, there's a thing in the middle called the double bull. Uh, that's the very heart. And so we're going to try and unpack what is the very heart? What's that great concern right at the dead center of the bullseye of this command? Because I submit to you, it's not quite so broad or so simple as mere sexual immorality within a marriage. And we can find this out that is uncovering that center of this command when we look at the kind of different penalties or punishments that are given out in the law for breaking uh, this command. And so for that, I want to turn you to Deuteronomy chapter 22. So look with me. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, You understand in Exodus, as we're studying it, this is the first giving of the law. And Moses basically reteaches and expands on the law to Israel in Deuto, second onomy, law, nomos, the second law in Deuteronomy. And when we come to Deuteronomy 22, we first, I'm going to point out, we come to the laws of sexual morality, and really 
We're going to begin even just with the law of adultery, and we're going to see the penalty there. So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, reads like this. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. So like so many of the commands that we've seen of the Ten Commandments, when you break one of those Ten Commands and the whole law of Israel, you're to be put to death, you're to be executed. Evidently, God finds something so crucial, so precious, and what He's trying to guard and protect by giving this command, that when it's broken, that person needs to be removed from the, the people of God. And for Israel, who was a, a nation state, that means you were then executed, you were you exited this life. And again, that's not how it works for the church. Uh, we relate to the law a bit differently. If you have questions about that, go see some of the earlier sermons as we talked about those things. But nevertheless, you see, God takes us very, very seriously, this matter of adultery, such that the violators are to be executed. Now, as the law continues, we find a little bit different scenario. The details change But evidently, actually, the punishment's the same. And when we compare these, we start to understand, okay, what's really at hand in this command, don't commit adultery? So, for example, just look at the next two verses. We're at Deuteronomy verse 23 of chapter 22 now. reads like this, "'If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. Now, as we read there in verse 22, talking about the betrothed virgin, who is that? This is one who, to make an analogy that the closest we can in our culture, it's someone who's engaged. They're engaged to be married, but they're not married quite yet. And yet, if she sleeps with this guy... And the idea is she does so willingly, that is, this wasn't rape. Uh, The idea willingly comes out in that it was in the city because she would cry out and be heard and rescued otherwise, but that's not the case in this one. Anyway, the point is, if she willingly sleeps with him too, then both of them need to be put to death. That is, it's the same punishment for when we read when the person was married. That is... They're being treated just like adulterers, and because under the law of God, they are. But she's not technically married, you said. How does this work? Yes, that's true. She's not technically married as we understand it. But in this culture, to be betrothed means there's already been an exchange of promises and vows publicly. She's already made a promise. He's already made, been promised and accounted for this relationship. And so when this has happened then, a promise has been broken. Adultery has taken place, and so the same punishment is engaged. However, look down to verse 28 of Deuteronomy 22, because here's another situation that changes yet again. This time, the virgin is not betrothed yet, and so then, of course, neither has she been married, and here's how things play out then. So look at verse 28. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, and then the man who lay with her, 
So here's the consequence. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her, and he may not divorce her all his days. So what's going on here? The situation is quite similar to the others. However, the one main difference is is whether or not that woman has been promised to someone else or not. And in this case, she hasn't. And so if she hasn't been promised, if there's been no vows made and exchanged publicly then, then whatever this is, it isn't technically adultery. It doesn't break then the seventh commandment in the strictest sense. So the penalty is different. It's not the death penalty, but it's a life sentence of marriage. See how that works? And that means then the violator, he has to take on all the financial responsibility that comes with that, from the dowries to a lifelong provision. Now, why is this all important to know and understand, to to parse this out? Is that because, well, does that mean fornication is okay, but only adultery is wrong? No. We'll get to that very clearly in a little bit. But the point is, there's something bigger in this command than sexual immorality about who you can and cannot sleep with. It's namely, we're getting to the double bull of the bullseye. It's about a commitment. It's about a vow. It's about a promise and faithfulness to that commitment. Adultery is the breaking of that most fundamentally, the betrayal of the promise. Because see, that promise in marriage is the most precious, the most closest, the most intimate promise that can be made on this earth, creating the most intimate union where two actually become one. There's no closer relationship even possible on earth. And it's a promise and a command to be faithful to that promise. And it was so crucial to guard the very life of the people of God, that it had to be commanded, you must not ever break that promise, such that the logic in Scripture runs like this. If you would be willing to break that promise, to betray that covenant, then who else wants you betray? You know, who can trust you? Who can believe that you won't turn on them? just like you did to the one that you said you were going to love exclusively and you had eyes for alone, to whom you pledged your love and devotion. If you can turn on them, who won't you turn on? Oh, but we want to object and say, but if you knew the situation I'm in, if you knew the marriage I'm stuck in, if you knew my wife, if you knew my husband, oh, you'd understand. The whole point of this command is, no, that's not how this works. And isn't it the whole point why we have vows and why we word them and make the promises the way we do? We're we're not promising to, to love our spouse and to be committed to our spouse only as long as we get affirmed or only as long as we get what we want out of the deal. Or only as long as there's still a spark and we get fulfillment and we get what we want out of it. That's not how my vows went. You know how the traditional vows usually go? For better or 
for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in sadness and in joy. As long as we both shall live, the circumstances change, but the commitment doesn't. That's what the marriage commitment is. And I promise to be faithful always to you alone. The whole point of marriage, it's an unbreakable, permanent union in this life made by your promise, your word to God, and your word to your spouse. Marriage is not made by sex. It's not made by having that spark. It's not made by having this connectivity. It's not made by having found your soulmate. Your marriage is made by your word. And so his word to his people is, keep it. By the help of Christ, keep it for the glory of His name. Because as we know, we don't have time to expand upon all of this. Because you know what He does? He keeps His word to His bride, doesn't He? No matter how awful she's been. Praise God He does. And He's calling us as His people to show that in our marriages out to the world. With that, as we're protecting against marital infidelity, breaking of that vow and that promise, well, what are things that we can do to do that practically? Well, number one, I'm going to say this, go find a couple that's been married longer than you have and ask them. They're going to give you the nitty-gritty that I probably can't even give you from the pulpit, right? Like I was sitting next to a brother after a wedding at the reception. He and his wife have been married 59 years this week. Praise God. And they love Christ and love one another and are walking through even great trials as we speak. Go find him and his wife. Ask them or many others who've been married just even decades. Talk to them. But after you do that, here's just some general approach on the battlefield on protecting against infidelity. And it has a two-pronged approach. On the one side, you got to take the offensive. And what I mean by that is you need to invest in your marriage relationship. You got to be active here. You have to invest in your spouse. Rick, you're talking about date nights? Well, I guess. Sure. That's not a bad idea. But like, do a real date night where you actually connect. I will say, men maybe in particular, we can think we've checked the date night box. Oh, yeah, I took my wife out to a movie. We went to dinner. We went to this event. We got to dress up. We weren't with the kids. But then you hardly talked to her. You hardly listened. You hardly actually connected. So what am I talking about? Actively investing? I'm talking about talking. You got to open your mouth. And your mouth has to indicate what's going on in here. So that your wife can connect with you. And you can connect with her. I'm talking about communication. Talking about praying together, crying together, planning together, moving forward together. You got to make time for that to invest in your marriage. You got to be active. You can't wait till you'll find the time. Your marriage is too important to put it on the back burner of the range of your life, and then it gets cold and stale, and you're like, oh no, I better go heat it up again. It takes time to be all in, so take the time. That's the active approach. Second, though, you need to be on the defensive too. 
And the defensive approach to here is you need to set up boundaries in your relationships with others, especially with those of the opposite sex. You need to set up boundaries to keep out temptations and opportunities for your heart to connect intimately with others. You can't get emotionally involved with someone of the opposite sex and stay clean there. The book of Proverbs gives this picture. It's like you're taking a burning coal and just putting it in your lap, trying to see what's going to happen. You're going to get burned is what's going to happen. You cannot flirt with a woman who's not your wife. You cannot take a second look. Don't you dare take a second look. Don't you dare make that click. Don't you dare reach out in that way. Don't do it. Don't start to make those connections. You can't be seeking emotional support and affirmation from some other man. Even if your husband is as cold as a brick wall, that's not an excuse to go find support somewhere else. Find it in Christ first. Go there. But whether it's at church or workplace or internet somewhere, you you can't be investing emotionally with some other man. But if we will set up boundaries, set up walls even in some cases, that kind of inappropriate intimacy and allure, it's hard to cultivate if there's a big wall that you have to go over to make it happen that'll prevent those emotional ties from developing. So very practically, what does this mean? The Mike Pence rule? Well, maybe, maybe that helps, and I use it, frankly. But the point is, you just need to keep your relationships with, say, other women or men, whatever, just very public, that everyone can see, everyone knows what's going on, everyone's listening in. And why do you need to do that? Because you need to do it to protect your marriage and to protect theirs. Why? The intimacy that's intended for marriage, if you're married, you need to be investing in it there. And that'll keep you from dabbling into others. That's one way that we need to protect and honor marriage. Next, we also need to guard against sexual morality. Here's the next battlefront. And to look at this, we need to go back to the beginning, going back to Genesis 2, where God made marriage, and we'll see the right context for sexual expression. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and let's be reminded of when God made marriage. So we've seen that the the principal issue with adultery then is about protecting that marital commitment, that vow, okay? And yet we see, of course, this command has to do with sexual infidelity. First in the marriage, but quickly we find in God's law, it sets the pace for all right sexual expression too. So we must protect our marriages by guarding against sexual immorality. So first, by way of reminders, we're here in Genesis 2 now. I just want to, again, highlight, despite whatever rules, whatever boundaries, whatever it feels like, God's being so restrictive about this. Realize, God thought up sex first. It was His idea, actually. And He intended it as a good gift from a good God. And it's a good and powerful gift. It's the most intimate gift, but it needs to be enjoyed with His design because it's that powerful, which is in the context of a secure, stable, promised commitment. That's why sex is reserved and given only in marriage by God's design. That's what we see here. 
as we look at Genesis 2. Here in the garden of Genesis 2, we see God kind of overseeing the first wedding ceremony, and He's bringing Eve to Adam, and we hear Adam's response, which is really like a vow. So look at it in Genesis 2, verse 23, reads, Then the man said, This at last! You know, after he'd seen all the animals, now he sees this stunning figure. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the Hebrew is especially expressive here. Uh, This is really the first poetry in the Hebrew Bible, at least reading it from cover to cover, so to speak. This wasn't merely a comment of fact. Oh, I see that you're human and they were animals. No, this is a comment, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is of passion, of commitment, of I'm yours, you're mine, we're one. And that's what comes out in the next verse. It sets up this marriage principle for all humanity. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They become one by that vow, that commitment. Two people become one. That's expressed in how they share companionship for all of life. There's a spiritual connection there. There's a heart connection there. But, of course, that includes that physical connection of the sexual relationship. As the Genesis text goes on to allude to in verse 25, when we read, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is God's design for sex. It's designed for marriage and marriage alone. But we see quickly after this through all of Scripture, we know it very well perhaps in our own life, once you reach for that kind of oneness without the marriage bond, shame is involved. Once you start acting like a married person when you're not or with someone who isn't married to you, damage is done. Because one pastor used the illustration, sex is like super glue. He puts it like this. Whenever people try and isolate the pleasures of sex, they always end up harming themselves and others. Since sex is like super glue, squeezing it out at the wrong time or in the wrong place always creates an awful mess. He's right. The wrong things get joined together and getting them unstuck again tears at the soul. He says, this is why adultery is forbidden. It's because sex is a great force for good, but only when it is used to join one man and one woman for life. He's absolutely right. Any sex outside of marriage is forbidden. And if that's the principle illustrated here, we see it play out in specifics in the explanations of the law. So I want to turn to the next text you have up in the screen there, and that's Leviticus chapter 20. In Leviticus chapter 20, we have an extrapolation of Israel's sexual boundaries. In a way, we have this principal command, don't commit adultery, and all that it entails by implication for the people of Israel. And so, for example, as he starts to set out the the laws for sexual morality, he starts with adultery. So, look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. It just reads plainly, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, 
Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So it sets that as that principal command, but then he starts to draw out the implications in this chapter. We we don't have time to go into all of it, but for example, verses 11 and 12 deal with forms of incest, basically. And then verse 13 condemns homosexual behavior, which reads, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Or even verses 15 and 16 prohibit bestiality, and then more incest laws follow. What's the point? When God made sex, He put it in marriage and only for marriage. So, any sex outside of marriage, whatever form it is, it's just wrong. It's sinful. It's a perversion, and it is a corruption of how God created it to be, like we saw in Genesis 2. And I put it this way because it's a principle that sex and marriage go together and only together, that all creation, all the nations should know. Because look down with me to verse 22. After he lays out all of these sex laws in Leviticus 20, he starts to talk about the other nations. They didn't receive the law on Mount Sinai, and yet he's going to hold them accountable to the marriage principle. Leviticus 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes, he tells Israel, and all my rules and do them, that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out, that you won't get kicked out of the promised land. Verse 23, here it is. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. You know, like the Canaanites, for example. For they did all these things. What things? Like what we just read about. Adultery, bestiality, homosexual behavior, incest. That's what characterized these four nations. And what happened to them? It says the end of verse 23, For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. You should know better based on how I made creation. Again, these nations, even though they weren't God's chosen people, they knew what true marriage was. They knew what right sexual expression should be. But they rejected it and said, we're going to go our own way, and for it they were judged. Furthermore, that's why Paul speaks in Romans 1 the way he does, right, about homosexual desires as being against nature, because it's against God's very design for sex. He made it for marriage between a man and a woman alone. And so Paul, in his argument, his point is, how do we know that mankind is sinful and rebellious? One way is to see what we've done with this, to take the goodness of marriage and redefine it and make it fit and work in our own way, that's not at all how this works. That's contrary to my design. It's sinful is what it is. All this just reinforces the truth. God made marriage, and He designed marriage to be that closest, most intimate union on the earth, physically and otherwise. In that way, all sex, all sexual desire, all sexual expression outside of that is sinful. So to sum up kind of where we've been so far for the two points, if the bullseye of the command of don't commit adultery is about those vows and that commitment, that's the very center of the, of the bullseye target. The whole target itself is about the implications of that command, and it's that all sex of any kind outside of marriage is sinful. Now, what are we to do with this to protect our marriages, and the marriages of those around us. 
Well, let's deal with it in two cases. What do you do about this if you're not married? Well, on the one hand, if you're not married, young men, if you burn and you feel ready for sex, then you need to get married. But that means if, young men, you burn and feel ready for sex, you actually need to get yourself first ready for marriage. Get yourself marryable, men. That's where this goes. Get yourself ready to provide for a whole life, for you and for your wife and for your family. And until you do that, you're not ready for, you're not ready for marriage. You're not ready for sex of any kind. You need to get yourself ready for, to be a career. You need to get yourself ready to lead, to provide, to provide spiritually and to provide physically. You need to be ready to die to your hobbies, to die to your free time, to die to your wants, to die to your dreams. And you're going to live for Christ's and your bride's. Again, if you're unmarried, on the women's side, I'm going to put out at least two things here. First, protect yourself from leering unmarried men or married men. Don't be sending out sexual messages to their lustful minds. That's one way to help protect marriages. But young women also, be just becoming marriable, be godly, be servants, be humble, be cultivating submission to the authorities that God has put over you, being ready to submit and learn what it means to honor your husband. So that's on the unmarried side. But what does this mean on the married side? And for that, I'm going to point you to, I don't have time to look at it, but point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In short, sexual intimacy needs to be a regular and faithful part of your married life. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 7, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Then he goes on, verse 5, Do not deprive one another. Now, there's two sides to this. On the first hand, just because that command is there, that means you have no excuse to indulge yourself somewhere else because you're Spouse is cold and unwilling. Ah, but they don't want to, and so I have no other choice. No, 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 no. You have no excuse for your lack of self-control. And nor is this verse to be used like a bludgeon to force people into something they don't want to do either. That's not how this works. But in a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, this needs to be a regular part of your life, assuming you're physically able. And if it's not then that means in that unity and relationship, something's amiss, something's wrong, and it's not okay to just let it be wrong. It's like the foundation in your house. You know, if something's cracked down there, you don't do well to just ignore it. You got to go crawl under there and see what's amiss. And so get help. Get help by reaching out as a couple, reach out together, and just be honest. Be honest about where your sex life is. Say, is this healthy? And if it's not, or you have questions, reach out to an elder and his wife, or reach out to your fellowship group leader, or your trusted brother and sister in the church, or maybe that older couple I mentioned, and talk with them, and try and get help. Because that kind of sexual dysfunction, it imitates or intimates a relational disconnect somewhere. 
That's not healthy. And it's setting both of you or others among you up for sexual morality. You got to guard against it. And one way to guard against it is an active, healthy sexual relationship in your marriage. Third, we must guard against, though, internal impurity. And for that, we're going to turn to Matthew 5 and look at the words of Jesus. Of course, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where Jesus himself explores and explains this command. Because whatever boundaries you might set up and general principles we might be able to give, they can only go so far in preventing adultery, let alone sexual morality. You have to go to the heart of the law. You've got to root out the very desire itself. You've got to be on guard in your heart against internal impurity, the impure heart. And so to that, we're just going to turn right to verse 27 of Matthew 5. And Jesus first rehearses that old command. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then by His most insightful authority that He has as the Son of God, He says, but I say to you, You've read it this way, and you've heard it taught this way, namely a way that is always looking at the externals. You know, like in the way that a new Christian couple that's engaged, they're always asking questions about, well, how far can we go? You know, can we kiss? And if we kiss, do we count how many seconds? Can we hug frontal, or is it always sideways? What about a kiss on the cheek? Can I do this and that? They're just trying to figure out, what's the line that I cannot cross? Can I still have, can I still technically keep the letter of the law and indulge my fleshly lusts? That's the question usually being asked. It's just phrased quite differently, isn't it? I mean, is that obedience? Is that holiness? Is it purity to refrain from evil but wished you would do it? And think it would be better to? To that, Jesus, by saying, but I say to you, gives a resounding no. You may have kept the very letter of the law, but not the spirit of it, and that's Jesus' whole point. He's after a revolutionized, changed heart. Such that, he declares in verse 28, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is astonishing. If not, just very convicting. But do you see this? You don't have to have intercourse with someone to commit adultery here. You don't have to go to bed with anyone. You don't have to physically do anything but just look. Look with lustful intent, reads the ESV, and that's a fine translation. But more basically, it just means to desire, to look with want, to look with desire, to look and say, I want that to be mine. I want to take that. I want to touch that. I want that to be mine. I want that to please me. I want that to affirm me. This is adultery is what it is. Lured, enticed, conceived, committed, right in your heart. Guilty. Now, surely it is true that physical adultery and you might say spiritual or mental adultery are not the same thing, and that is true. 
Uh, The consequence for physical adultery under the old covenant was death. But Jesus hints that the consequences, even still for that affair just of the heart, so to speak, its consequences are equally grave. Look at this. Look at verse 29. If your right hand causes you to sin, excuse me, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Whoa! Did you hear that? If your lusting eye is leading you to sin, cut it out. Because it would be better to have one eye like a pirate than to have two and burn in hell forever. That's what Jesus is saying. It'd be better to not have a smartphone, as awkward as that is in our society, than to have one and to take it right into hell. I think we get from Jesus that this lustful look is a really serious offense to God. Consider also what Paul tells the Corinthians. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 reads, Do not be deceived. Interesting, that's where he starts. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But again, he starts all that off to say, don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself into thinking, well, my sin's not too serious, really. It's just in my heart. Jesus will forgive me. No one even really knows about it. No, God does know about it. And he hates it. And he's warning you through his word this morning that he hates it. And you're only fooling yourself if you think that means nothing to him. That it doesn't matter. It matters to Jesus. And that's why he tells you here, it's better to pluck out your eye, figuratively speaking, of course, than to keep both eyes lusting all your way to hell. And so we have to speak to it now, but I trust you feel at the moment the abomination that pornography is, that silent enslaver, binder to hell. I say silent enslaver because it seems so private, so unnoticed, so inconsequential. I mean, adultery, physically, right? You've got unplanned pregnancies, STDs, elaborate lies for liaisons, but pornography, I mean, it's harmless, right? Just looking at images. Actually, I wonder, does it do more damage? Because the kind of damage it does is so imperceptible. It's like an acid to the whole moral fabric of your mind, eating it away. And it's seen because maybe you know this, certainly felt this. You you become like an addict as it just pulls you deeper into sin. You're always needing a new thrill. You're always needing a new out. It pulls you down into watching things you never would have tolerated before. It pulls you down into further sins too. Lying, cover-ups, sneaking around, shading the truth, making sure no one finds out about this. Because you start to think, you buy the lie that your only hope is to keep hiding this in. Oh, I'll get a handle on it next time. You promise to yourself again and again and again because you have to again because you keep breaking it. Because you can't break the cycle. You're enslaved. Jesus knows this temptation. That's why he's calling you, be warned. Take it seriously. You know, most that end up on the cover of newspapers, and I've seen it on the Chesterfield Observer, 
with a pastor on there. But the guys that make the headlines for the gross sexual sins, pastors with long adulterous affairs, or school workers convicted of pedophilia, none of them just woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going to ruin my life today, see if I can get on the paper. You know, I've heard it said, whenever someone falls into adultery, they never fall very far. What does that mean? Again, to use that expression, you don't get out of bed one happy morning and just out of the blue go commit adultery. No, what has the adulterer done? All of that moment, they've taken many compromising step after step after step after step after step until it's just one more. The little compromises really do matter, is the point, because they set your moral trajectory, what you can tolerate. And it really matters because your sin will find you out. God brings accountability, and it's going to hurt. And the more you dive into the sin, it's going to hurt all the more. And it's going to hurt more and more people around you the longer you hide it. Like it did with King David. Pastor Phil Riken brings it together like this, reflecting on David's life and his sexual sin. He says, God certainly held David accountable, didn't he? For the moment the king decided to act on his lust, his life became a tragic series of disappointments. He lost almost everything he had worked so hard to obtain. Bathsheba's son died. David's family was torn apart by rape and incest and fratricide. His kingdom was divided. His beloved son rebelled against him and was killed, I would add. And all for the sake of a few minutes in bed. Do you think it was worth it, he asks. Well, Jesus tells us, no, no, it's not, ever. Actually, it'd be better to lose eyes, limbs, and body parts than cling to all of those in your lusting heart and burn right in hell. Eternity in exchange for a few moments of pleasure, that can never be worth it. No, that's heavy. Where do we go from here? Pastor Riken has one more word to add, and he says this. In this whole sordid affair, there was only one thing that David did right. He admitted his sin. Very simply from the account in 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan the prophet, I've sinned against the Lord. I mean, really, that's incredible. It's that simple. And here's what Nathan tells him by the authority of God, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And understand, that's, that's a hope for any in this room. Christ came into the world to forgive sinners, murderous sinners like Paul, we talked about the last time we looked at this, but are adulterous, lustful ones like David too, but he only comes to save sinners. So if you sit back trying to hide all of your sin or pretend, oh, I don't even know what sin is, you're putting yourself beyond the reach of Christ's saving grace. But as soon as you just confess, I'm a rebel, God, and I've disobeyed against you, he says, yes, but I died for that sin. Know my forgiveness. Know that I can make you righteous. Know that I can make you pure. Know that I've made you mine. I died for that. But that comes by the assurance of our confession of it. So as we walk through this morning, and maybe you're feeling convicted, you're hiding onto that sin, don't sit on it after this message. 
Don't buy the lie that Christ will be ashamed of you, even though you are so ashamed of yourself. Christ glories in saving sinners. So confess it and bring it to him, that he might change you radically like he did the Corinthians. You know, we read that text earlier, 1 Corinthians 6. He said, don't be deceived. He listed all these people who will not go to heaven. But then he adds this very thing, and he says, and such were some of you. For some of you, those sins defined your life, but now Christ defines you because you trust in him. And you've been washed, he says. You've been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But that only happens as we confess. We can only know the assurance of that if we confess it. If you confess your sins, he is, he is faithful. His cross is strong enough and his righteousness is good enough. It can handle all of your shame and sin that you've brought to him. But don't sit on it. Let him take care of it. Confess it. Bring it to light. And then you can know that the shame is gone. The hiding's gone. The guilt is gone. The cross has taken it all. And you can walk in freedom of conscience, conscience in a new life to walk in purity. Because he bought you. He owns you. As it ends in that chapter, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Well, let's pray that as His redeemed, that we can walk in that new life, that our bodies would be vessels of purity and of service to this great Redeemer. And any here that's been holding on to their sin, oh, make it known. Make it known to the Lord. Make it known to someone else who a brother or sister can help you. And may none of us here, Grace Bible Church, may we be defined as Grace Bible Church. When a brother or friend who we had no idea was struggling comes and brings their sin to us, what do we say? I'm a sinner too. I need mercy too. I'm going to pray with you. We're going to walk together in this. Because Christ, the gospel, and this church, it's only for sinners. It's not for people who think they have it all together. Let's praise Him for this. Let's pray. Father, what a mercy it is to know that we can cast ourselves on mercy, uh, that we can know the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, We can't save ourselves. We can't rectify ourselves. We can't make enough promises. We can never make it right with a whole rest of our life of faithfulness. The only way it can be right is with you, and so we praise you that you're a redeeming God. We thank you for the spotless righteousness of Christ that never changes. And may we as a people throw off sin, flee sexual morality, cultivate our marriages, enjoy our spouses, and do that as a testimony to this world that Christ came to redeem sinners, even if we be the foremost. It's for His glory we pray. Amen.